Well, good to be with you. I uh, cherish these times together, and I'm especially excited about this morning uh, in the fact that uh, we are done with Christmas, and uh, we are starting a uh, study, a new study, which will be in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to begin at verse 43 and verse 48. It's a uh, 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 one paragraph that we're going to be dealing with. It's an illustration. I'm going to introduce this paragraph to you this morning. And of course, this is in a, in a sequence. Uh, so we're really leaping in the middle of a, of a study. But this is a focused study of its own. And I'm anxious to get into this with you. Uh, thank you for your uh, participation this week. We had a, we had a great wedding. Woo! I got married all over again, so it was just wonderful. So we're, we congratulate the new uh, wedding couple. Was somebody going to applaud? Yeah. And uh, Joseph, I have to say, he was really clever about this. I mean, this is, I don't, I, I should have thought of this myself. See, he had the wedding on Christmas. That way you don't have to get an anniversary gift. See, it's just Christmas. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, moving along here. <laughs> this is the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount starts in chapter 5, 6, and 7. So you got these three chapters. In Luke's gospel, he spreads this Sermon on the Mount all over the place. So Jesus preaches a little bit here, a little there, refers to it here, so forth. But in Matthew, Matthew just squeezes it all together and presents it to you in a three-chapter deal. So it's one long sermon, aren't they all? So uh, here you go with this Sermon on the Mount. And I confess to you that the uh, stupidest, most ridiculous thing in the world is for a guy like me to stand up and say, hey, I'm going to take the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest man who ever preached it, and I'm going to explain it to you, <laughs> which is a little ridiculous. It is absolutely, I've stayed away from the Sermon on the Mount uh, all of these years uh, on purpose because it's so radical, it's so concise, it's so unmovable, it's so... There's no way to rationalize. There's no wiggle room in it. There's just, it's just at you. And Jesus, of course, what he's doing, this is supposedly at the beginning of his ministry, at the, at, at the start of his ministry. And in chapter 5, if you go back to verse 1, he is speaking to his disciples. Uh, he went up on a mountain, and when he had seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them. So what he's doing is he's saying, hey guys, I want you to know what you're getting yourself into. So if you have any desire to be a Christian at all, what are you going to be? If you have any inclination towards uh, following Christ, what's that going to look like? And he says, hey, I want to let you in on it. I want you to know what's going down. So the Sermon on the Mount is the proposition that Jesus is giving concerning what's going to take place for those who are literally entering into a new relationship that he is introducing into the world. So in the Old Covenant, you've got the Old Testament, Old Covenant. In Jesus, you've got this New Covenant. What is this all about? He calls it the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is not a location to go to. It's not a club to join. The kingdom of God is relational in its content. So it's a relationship with the person of Jesus 
And it's what he calls the kingdom is within you, which is a relational within you concept, reality of you and God coming together. Now, interesting in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't start out with a couple of jokes, get your attention, move into some current events, come up to the end with this, whoa, this great, great truth. He starts right at the beginning laying out what I call the premise of his message. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount has to be understood in light of the premise. If you don't get the premise, you're going to miss it all together. He's not giving you a new list of rules. He's not giving you some uh, goals to achieve. He's not giving some uh, ceremonies to perform. He is giving you a basic relational premise that we are now moving into. And the old relationship with God that was, hey, okay on its own level, but it was a four-year-old level. Old Testament law, four-year-old level. And hey, we've all been on the four-year-old level. We know what that is. My dad comes and says, hey, pick up your toys. Your room's a mess. I'm four years old. Pick up your toys. Your room's a mess. I say, okay, dad. He leaves. I kick most of the toys under the bed, put a few in the closet. It looks pretty good. (laughs) He comes, looks in my room, says, thank you, son. You did well. What he doesn't know won't hurt him. That's four-year-old Old Testament stuff. But now, he says, what we're moving into is not a God who's in the sky watching you and has some rules that you've got to keep. What we're now moving you into is we're moving you into an intimate relationship where God is on the scene in the inner heart and you and him have come together and you're you're going to become a son and you are going to be a kingdom person. Now, he gives the premise for all of this, starts the premise of all of this, in the Beatitudes, which is the very first uh, uh, verse 3 of the Sermon on the Mount. And the premise is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, poor in spirit, you don't have any problem understanding that. Poverty stricken where? Not financially, but in your spirit. In other words, if I take a knife and slice you down the middle and I go to the inner core of your being and I literally go to the core of what makes you tick, what drives you, what, what, what sources you, your inner resource, what do I find there? Absolutely nothing. Why? Because <laughs> you're poor. You're totally, absolutely helpless. You're not kind of helpless. You're not, well, sometimes you're helpless. You're not, well, there's something, no, totally, absolutely helpless. Now, most of us would rear back and say, well, there's some things I can do well. Okay, yeah, there's, hey, I'm a good electrician. Well, good for you. I can take a ball bat and hit a ball over the fence, make a million-dollar contract. Well, good for you. I'm in the big leagues. Well, good for you. But, hey, when I take a knife and slice you down the middle, I find out you have no resource in the inner core. You can't get along with your wife. You can't handle your body drives. You can't handle your temper. You can't, you can't, you can't. Why? Because all of that comes from in here. So at the core of what really makes you, you, you're helpless. Well, that's awful. Why am I that way? Because you've sinned. No. You've sinned because you're that way. Because I don't want to be that way. So I do, the best I, ha- I do the best I can with what I've got. Well, what do I have? Well, <laughs> helplessness. 
And when you operate out of helplessness, you live in failure. Does that make sense to you? Well, if I'm not that way because I've sinned, if I've sinned because I'm that way, why am I that way? Oh, God created you to be that way. <laughs> That's the way he made you. You're supposed to be that way. You mean helplessness is not, oh my. No, helplessness is a whoopee. See, helplessness is not, oh, this is terrible. Helplessness is, yay. So he says, what you're do to do with your helplessness is, the second beatitude, verse 4, you are to embrace it like mourning. In other words, you've lost, you just lost your, your most precious loved one and, and you just feel this hole inside. You're just overcome with grief. I want you to live in your helplessness that way. I want you to live helpless. I want you to always be aware of it. Walking down the street, over at your job, driving your car, whatever you're doing, I want you to be aware of, I'm helpless, I'm helpless, I'm helpless. Live in the boundaries of your helplessness. Never step out of, don't ever get cocky. Don't ever like, act like, oh, I can handle this. No, you can't. In every situation, marriage, finances, habits, whatever, live in helplessness. Let it overwhelm you. Always know I'm helpless. Why would I want to do that? Oh, because that becomes the trigger, the activation. That becomes, that releases, that tears down the barriers. That allows God to literally flow, he says, into you and comfort you. In other words, it releases all the resource of what God is to literally come and merge with you. Not touch you, merge with you. Not fellowship with you, merge with you. Literally, you and him merging into a new person. Now the Bible language for this is overwhelming. Because it's born again language. Been born again. What do you mean, born again? How can he be born again? Well, I'm not what I was. I'm not who I was. I'm, I'm a different person. How could you be a different person? Same on nose. I know. It's all over the place. But hey, I, I, it's still there. But whoa, I'm, something has happened. My helplessness, his overwhelming presence, and those two things, my nature, helpless nature, his nature, oh, the resource of God, have literally come together in this phenomenal merger. And in that merger, this new person, old things are passed away, all things have become new. You are a new creature. Now this blows the recovery idea clear out of the water. See, I'm not a recovering alcoholic. Well, I'm a new new person. So I'm not struggling to get over. I'm, oh. See, this is radical. This is radical language. This is a new species called sons of God. (sighs) Now that's his premise. So he says, if you will live in your helplessness, just live there. He will release all that he is in you. And he won't just, it isn't. See, you don't become God. Don't, don't, hey, no, we're not even proposing that. Don't, don't let your brain go there. Well, I'm now God. No, you're not. You're helpless. You're always helpless. Every time you're helpless. So you're never God. You're always helpless. 
And it's in the helplessness that you become the platform upon which he can, de he can design your life. That in creation, you were made not to operate out of yourself. You were made to live in cooperation with him. And when you are not in cooperation with him, you're on your own. And when you're on, when you're on your own, what do you have to do? I have to use every circumstance of my life to do what? To get for me. Why? Because I'm helpless. So I have to protect God. You're not going to. I get mad when you. Why do I do all that? Well, I'm helpless. That's his premise. Now he says, I know you didn't get that. So, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you illustrations of what it looks like. Now, I hate these illustrations. The reason is because in looking over the illustrations, all six of them, I tried to find one illustration. I tried to find one thing in my life that wasn't covered in the illustrations. There's six of them. See, if I could find one thing, well, this, this is not covered in the illustrations. Then I could do what I want to do. <laughs> I couldn't find one. <laughs> Six illustrations of what this looks like. He starts in verse 21 with the first illustration. The first one is murder. And each illustration is set up in a contrast. Over here on this side was the old. Over here on this side is the new. Over here is I was on my own in an old covenant trying to keep the law. Over here, I'm literally fused with God. His nature, my nature. We've become this new person. What is this new person like? Over here, I'm operating out of my helplessness. Over here, his resource is literally flowing in my life, producing this new person. That's the contrast. Now, over here, murder. Over here, the old timer said, I got a temper. I know. I lose my temper. I know. I popped out of my mother's womb and that some dude slapped me and I've been mad ever since. I know. I can't help it. I know. Well, get yourself under control. Right. Go to anger management. Anger management. Manage that anger. Okay. Count to ten. Take a cold shower. All right. Doing the best I can. Well, what's the best you can? Well, I've decided I'm not going to kill anybody. It's the best I can pull off. Hate your guts. Slander your name. Run you out of town. I'm not going to kill you. Put your picture on a wall. Get a shotgun. Blow your stinging head. Clear off. But I'm not, I'm not going to really do it. Not going to do it. It's the best I can do. That's over here. Jesus says, here's my proposal. Don't get angry. Yeah, don't get angry. That's impossible. I know. Everybody gets angry. I know. I get upset. Everybody gets upset. You just proved his point. You're helpless. You couldn't pull that off in a million years. See, the best I can do is what? I'm not going to kill you. But the very idea, don't ever get angry. That's ridiculous. I know. Which is his whole premise. You're helpless and you can't get this done. Well, then why would you propose it? Oh, we're moving into a new deal. What's a new deal? Oh, 
he's going to come and literally invade my life. <laughs> and he and I are going to merge together. Amen. And we're going to become this new person. And anger is not going to be managed. It's going to be eliminated. Amen. So he talks about murder. Second illustration, which is verse uh, 27. The old timer again. Hey, I'm doing the best I can. What's the best you can do? I'm not going to cheat on my wife. I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not cheating on my wife. Hey, I'm telling you, I'm not going to cheat on my wife. And it's not because I'm such a nice guy. She'd kill me. <laughs> so I'm not going to cheat on my wife. I'm going to lust. I'm going to get into pornography. I'm going to want to cheat on her. I'm going to have an emotional affairs. I'm going to think about it, but I'm not going to do it. Best I can pull off. Jesus says, what would happen if you would step into a new level and you would see things different? Your perspective would change. What would happen if you would operate in your helplessness, he would merge with you, and you would begin to see women like he sees them. Well, that's impossible. <laughs> Stupid to even think about it. <laughs> See, this is not a rule. Don't look at women. This is, not a, this is not a rule. How are you going to pull that off? Don't look at women. They're everywhere. <laughs> See, evidently, the way I see them is going to have to change. Well, I can't do that. I know. I have no power within me to. I got it. So you're proving his point. You're helpless. He's going to have to come and merge with you. Now, he spills that illustration into marriage, which is verse 31. And the old timer, what did he say? Well, I've had it with my wife. That bad breath has finally gotten to me. Hey, sick of it. How can I get rid of her? Jesus says, let me take you into the new arena. What are you causing in your wife? What do you mean? Yeah, what are you causing? What are you talking about? Well, you come home from work. You're all upset. Everything went wrong. You come into the house. Ah, where's my supper? What have you just caused in her? Well, she looks at you and goes, then you look at her. What did you just cause? What if you would come in the house and say, oh, could I hardly wait to get here and see you? What would that cause? See, are you taking your wife and pulling her into godliness, pushing her into prayer, pulling her into security? Does your wife live in an overwhelming, she knows she can trust God. Why? Because she can trust you and you've built that into her. See, what are you causing? 
Now the next illustration is about honesty. See, the old timer said, well, yeah, if God gets involved and I really take an oath and swear by God, I'll have to tell the truth. But as long as I don't swear by him, there's some wiggle room. So I don't have to keep my word unless you make me take an oath on God. So when God is involved, I got to tell the truth. Jesus says, let me take you to the new level. What would happen if God lived within you and he was always involved? (laughs) What would happen if you were merged with him and he was always involved in everything you said? Well, you'd always have to tell the truth. Oh, brother. Well, that's impossible. I know. Everybody lies. I got that. You disproved his point. (laughs) You're helpless, aren't you? (laughs) You just... You get in a bind and, man, the pressure's on and you just twist the truth a little. I can't help it. I know. I know. You're helpless. But what if? What if? That's his proposition. Then he moves to this verse 38, fifth illustration. It says the old timer well, is all about fairness. We got to be fair. I got you. We got to be fair. I understand. Justice. You're right. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. I mean, it isn't fair. You poke my eye out, and it's not fair for you to run around with both eyes while I only have one. I ought to get to poke your eye out. Not two eyes, one eye. Be fair. Jesus says, What if this wasn't about being fair? What if this had absolutely nothing to do with about being fair? What if this was about being redemptive? What do you mean? Yeah, be redemptive. For instance, a guy comes and says, by law, you have to carry my packages one mile. So you grab those packages, you carry them one mile at the end of the mile, you drop them flat, stomp off, hey, I kept my... I did the fair thing by the law. <laughs> Jesus said, what would happen if you would whistle while you carry the first mile and when you come to the second mile, say, hey, I'm going to go another mile with you. Why? Just so I can talk about Jesus to you. And you build a relationship. Uh, The turn the other cheek is not a physical thing. The turn the other cheek in that passage is about insults. Somebody insults you. What are you, insulting back, brother? And I'm really good at that. See, you insult me, I insult you. You insult me, I can come up with a bigger insult for you. You insult me, I insult you. What did we win? Who won? And what did we win? (laughs) I hate your guts and you hate mine. That's what we won. What would happen if you'd insult me and I wouldn't insult you back? (laughs) Well, I wouldn't be fair. It's not about being fair. It's about being redemptive. Can you see Jesus hanging on a cross saying, he's hanging on a cross saying, this isn't fair. (laughs) Come on. You guys are way too serious. <laughs> Loosen up. 
Whoa, that's a fifth <laughs> illustration. Aren't these awful? <laughs> now we come, we haven't even got to this. We're now coming to the, my illustration, our illustration that I want to deal with for the next 30 years. <laughs> so it's verse 43. Look at this thing. This is the sixth illustration. This is the climactic illustration. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, (laughs) what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Therefore, be perfect. Just as your Father in heaven is perfect. (laughs) This has gone from bad to worse, hasn't it? Now, here's what we're going to do this morning. We're just starting the message now. We're going to look at this passage overall. The whole thing. The whole paragraph. I want to walk you through the whole paragraph, giving you the, the focus idea of it. And then, uh, next Sunday, we'll begin to start at the beginning and begin to break it all down and walk phrase by phrase through it. So, let's do an overall view of the whole thing. Number one, proposition. Verse 43 and 44 is the proposition. What do you mean proposition? Well, he's presenting again the contrast. You have heard it said by those of old, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, you will never, ever, ever, ever find that complete statement in the Old Testament. You're never told to hate your enemy in the Old Testament. Well, where'd they get that? <laughs> where we get our stuff, we made it up. <laughs> Why? Because it's easier. So we take the scripture and we adjust it. Because it's easier for us. Love your enemy or love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. Doesn't say that. But that's what they got out of it. And they made that up. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Now, there are... The issue in the proposition is motive. First thing you notice, first thing you notice, come on. Look at it again. First thing you notice is there's no physical activity involved. Now go back with me just in your mind. Go back to all the other five illustrations. They all were physical. Murder, adultery, divorce, swearing, turning the other cheek, eye for an eye. See there's Physical activity in every one of... Not this one. 
this is all about what you're feeling inside. Now the others are too, but he was using physical there. Now he's brought us to the point, says, hey, I'm done talking about the physical stuff. Let's really rip you open. Let's go down to the very core of your existence, down into the very heart of your life, and let's talk about what drives you. Let's talk about your motive. Let's talk about what you really want. Let's talk about what your real desire is. Let's talk about what's really going on down deep inside of you. Let's go there, he says. And see what that's like. Wow. Go there? Yeah. Let's go there. Now what is this motive idea? If you go to philosophy. Philosophy. The realm of philosophy says motive is made up of three things. External object. So there's always physical involved. Motive is never just over here. Motive always is in, has physical, physical involvement. So it's never, well, I do wrong, but I am right. No. <laughs> no. 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 Because what you are inside is going to spill into the physical activity. Has to. You don't, you don't have any choice. So here's a physical thing. So you got the external object. You got the internal principle. Oh, motive always is inside. Well, you just said it was outside. I know. There's always a physical, but there's always an inner, inner spiritual. So it's always inside, and it's always outside. And those two come together to produce desire. Let me give you an example. Bread! Oh, there's bread. It's a physical object. That's right. I have an internal principle, which is what? Hunger! I'm hungry. I see the bread... And I have an internal principle of hunger. And that creates an appetite. That says, I want bread. So motive is all about what? It's all about your appetite. What do you hunger for? What do you really desire? Come on, if you could really just be down to it 100% honest. With no one criticizing, no show, no... Bottom line, what is it you... What are you hungry for? What's your appetite? What do you really desire? What do you really want? Motive. He calls that motive. Motive. Now, in the proposition, there are two main verbs. Do you see them? He says, verse 44, I say to you, love and pray. Both of them are imperatives, which means they are commands. And they are equal in value. And it's something you're supposed to do. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, well, okay, I'm not sure what I really want. See, if you put me in a corner, set me down to a table, say, hey, write on this piece of paper what you really want. Ah, what do I really want? I don't know. How am I going to find out what I really want? I know how to find out what's really in you. I'm going to take you and put you right in the midst of enemies. Conflict. I know. They're shaking their fists in my face. They're ganging up on me. I know. 
What do you want? And it all rushes to the top. What you really want. So how do you find out what you really want? Get in the middle of a mess. Then you know who you really are. Now the old illustration is, this speaker was in college chapel. And he had a bunch of students, obviously, in chapel and was speaking to them. And he came down front and had in his, glass, he had in his hand a glass of water full of the top. He handed it to this, called a young lady up and handed it to her. So she has it in her hand now, a glass full of water. He says, now, what I want you to do, or he kept, he, the glass was in his hand. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put a hand here and a hand here. So she stood by his side. That's the way it was. She stood by his side, put a hand here, a hand here, and he held the glass of water. He said, now, what I want you to do is shake my arm. And she looked at him and, what? Yeah, just shake my arm. Well, it, no, just shake my arm. It's okay. It's just water. So she began to shake his arm gently at first, then wildly. And water was spilling all over the place in the front of the chapel. When he got done, he turned to her and said, I want to ask you a question. You're a college student. Why did water spill out of the glass? Well, she said, because it shook your arm. Think. Why did water spill out of the glass? Because water was in the glass. That's right. If milk would have been in the glass... It would have spilled out. If lemonade had been in the glass, it would have spilled out. What spills out is not determined by the shaking. <laughs> See, somebody comes along and bumps you. <laughs> Whoa. They made me do it. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. Well, we were all right until we moved here. No, you weren't. <laughs> Moving here revealed what you really are. This is hard, isn't it? So if I want to find out what my motive is, what my real hunger is, what I really, oh, what is it down at the bottom of my heart that drives me and possesses me? Oh, that's easy. Put you in the middle of enemies. They're at you. Oh. Conflict will put you in a dorm <laughs> with four or five other guys. Oh, brother. And what happens? <laughs> Or you'll get married. <laughs> yeah. So he says, I'm going to put you right in the middle of your enemy. Well, that's the proposition. Okay. Number two. Purpose. What's the purpose of that? Now look at verse 45. That. It's a purpose clause. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So what's he after? Oh, that you would see what you really are inside, helpless, and allow him to come in his fullness and merge with you. And you would become a son. See, this merger thing is the premise of the Sermon on the Mount. 
See, Christianity, guys, please, please, please get this. Christianity is not, well, I went to the altar. Christianity is not, well, I, I wrote my name down. Christianity not, I joined the church. Christianity is not, well, I'm not all that bad. Christianity, no, Christianity is not that. Christianity is you and Jesus coming together in such intimacy, such merger, such oneness, that there's this, there's this, there's this, oh, how do you describe it? Where he becomes your resource. And instead of operating out of your helplessness, you begin to operate out of, I'm a son. Uh, John 17 is a phenomenal chapter. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He's about to go into the Garden of Gethsemane. And the whole chapter is what we call the high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying. So this is not joke telling. This is not, you know, light, superficial. Oh, we're just hanging out. It isn't that at all. This is gut level stuff where he's just oh, pleading to the Father what he really wants. And in the high priestly prayer, he says, this is eternal life. Oh, haven't you always wanted to know what eternal life is? Well, what do you really want? I want to live forever, manly. I want to live forever. Hey, if you want to live forever, don't worry about it. You will. Everybody lives forever, folks. Ten million years from this moment, someplace you will be. Oh, yeah, you're talking about heaven and hell. What's the difference between heaven and hell? Not numbers of years not living forever what's the difference between heaven and hell quality boy quality <laughs> so it isn't about living forever come on you got that if you want to live forever you got that but it's about quality so the eternal life he's talking about is quality of life well how can I get that quality of life? Oh, listen to this. This is what he says in this prayer. It's phenomenal. He says, this is eternal life that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So knowing Jesus is eternal life. What do you mean knowing? There's four Greek words for know. The one that we talk about all the time is gnosko. Gnosko, I love the word, gnosko. It is an intimacy term. Meaning, well, for instance, it's the word that's used for sexual relationship in the scriptures. Mary. Joseph did not know Mary until they brought forth their first one son. That's this word. It's the most intimate relationship of human experience. Now he uses that in relationship to God. That you and Jesus are literally going to. Until your heart in his heart. Your being in his being. Your mind in his mind. Your emotions in his motions. And you begin to have his appetite. Because you're a son now. Or daughter. You're a son now. And you feel like he feels. Now, come on, guys. How are you going to make yourself do that? I'm going to feel like God feels. 
<laughs> you can't. I feel like I feel. I know. I can't help. I want what I want. I got that. I can't help it when somebody bumps me. I got that. So something is going to have to happen in my life where oh, he, my helplessness, his overwhelming appetite literally comes and I begin to want what he wants. And I'm a son. So he gives the proposition. Here's the proposition. I'm going to take you, put you in the middle of a mess, put you in the middle of enemies. And that's going to reveal who you really are. And why am I going to do that? So you can begin to say, oh, I want to be a son. I want to merge. I want him to come. I want him to do with me what I can't do. Well, what's about the power? How is this going to be done? What is the power that's going to do this? Look at the next phrase, verse 45. That you may be sons of your father. For he will make his son rise on the evil and on the good. And send rain on the just and on the unjust. Isn't it interesting when he comes to describe the appetite of God? He picks the most basic stuff of life. Rain and sunshine. And God doesn't have, get this, God doesn't have one single ounce or desire or appetite within his being to withhold from you. Well, prove that. Sun shines on the good, sun shines on the bad. Now, I wouldn't do that. See, you cross me, hey, I'll tell you, your garden won't grow, boy. I'll hold rain from you and scorch your grass. He's not that way. And when you put him in the middle of enemies, come on, they're all, and they all. And what spills out of them? Father, forgive them. Wouldn't it be something if that could be in you? Listen, there, we could just spend all day quoting these verses. Listen to this verse. But God, who demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, sinners Christ died for us. While we were still while we were in his face, while we spit out his name and cuss, while we damned him, while we... He died. That's the way he is. That's his appetite. Because his appetite is, I'm for you. His appetite is, I want you. His appetite is, I want goodness for you. His appetite is, hey, I will withhold no good thing from you. His appetite is, oh, I want to pour my life out for you. His appetite is, how can I help you? Don't ever come to me and ask me, is God mad at me? No! 
He is not. Will he forgive me? <laughs> he already has. Why did God let this happen to me? He didn't. You brought it on yourself. See, guys, if we've got a God who goes around saying, Manly, you've been bad, so I'm going to give your wife cancer. What kind of God is that? It's not the one I know about. He lets it rain on the just. Isn't that beautiful? So, here's the proposition. Verse 34, 43, and 44. I'm going to take you and place you right in the middle of the enemy. That way I'll know what you are, what you really want, what your appetite really is. And why am I doing that? So, you can see and have a craving within to say, Oh, I want to be a son of the Father in heaven. I want to be a son. I want... And how could you be a son? He's going to take his nature and give it to you. Well, what would this produce? The last verse, 48. Therefore, you shall, you must be, you shall be perfect. Now, the interesting thing is, we compare ourselves to ourselves. That's the way we survive. Hey, I'm not all I ought to be. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of people worse than I am. I'll tell you that. What does that do? That makes me feel good about myself. I'm not the worst person in the world. Hey, I do a lot of bad things, but I got a good heart. How many times have you heard that? I know my son, he's not what he ought to be, but he's a good boy. See, we're comparing ourselves. Never will forget. I was a kid, man. And my dad and I were walking down the street in a small town. My dad was pastor of the Methodist church in that town. And we were, we were passing by this house where the town drunk, the town drunk lived. Beat his wife, cussed and damned, everybody knew. It's a small town. So we were walking by. And so my dad went over and fell into a conversation with the town drunk. Talked to him about Jesus, invited him to church, said we'd love to have you. And the guy was, yeah, preacher out, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and finally, we prayed with him. And, and I'm just a kid, remember. And so we're walking down the sidewalk away from the town drunk. So the town drunk is yelling at us from the porch. And say, you're right, preacher. You're right. I, I shouldn't cuss so much. I'm sorry, preacher. I shot, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't beat my wife. You're right, preacher. I ought to come to church more. But I want to tell you, preacher, I don't eat meat on Friday. <laughs> see how we do not in this passage see you're not being compared with me in this passage you know who you're being compared with God his appetite your appetite Well, you think I need to be like God. 
God is omnipresent. Has he been talking about that? Well, God is all-powerful. Has he been talking about that? Well, God is all-knowing. Has he been talking about that? Come on, stick to the passage. What's he been talking about? What do you really want? What's your real desire? How am I going to find out? Put you right in the middle of the enemy. When you're in the middle of the enemy and they're in your face, you'll find out what you really want. Well, when you put him in the middle of the enemy, what does he want? Manly, this is the stupidest sermon I've ever heard. I know. I can't possibly be that way. I know. You disproved his point. <laughs> You're helpless, aren't you? <laughs> aren't we a bunch of helpless people who can't pull it off? So why would you want a religion that, well, I'll try to do better. <laughs> well, I'm working on it, preacher. Oh, come on. Wouldn't it be something to actually enter into intimacy, merger, relationship, where I begin to feel like he feels? I want what he wants. I'm seeing now through his eyes and I look at my wife like he looks at her. And I see you like. Well, what if that doesn't happen in my life? Then you're not Christian. You're not a son. Well, you're just judgmental. Oh, I'm not. And he isn't either. Because he has an appetite that says, Oh, I want to bring you in. I'm not condemning you. I want to bring you in. I'm not putting you down. I want to bring you in. Do you know what you could be? Do you know what kind of life you could live? Do you know what kind of dad you could be? Do you understand the kind of husband you could be? The kind of wife you could do you Do you know what, what, what could happen in your life? Do you know? Well, preacher, what do you want me to do? <laughs> Well, give me 50 bucks. <laughs> See, if it's a doing thing, then you're not helpless. But you're helpless. Would you embrace it? And allow him. Jesus, wow. This is so startling, God. This is so... This is so off the wall. This is so... There isn't any wonder they took you out and nailed you. 
Because you said stuff like this. Because this is a righteousness that exceeds all the righteousness of all the do-gooders of the days gone by. Because the best the do-gooders could do was don't kill people. Don't cheat on their wives. Be honest when God is involved. It's the best they could pull off. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's the best they could get done. And Lord, it's the best we can do. And we can barely get that done. So I don't have a ghost of a chance of being like you and loving like you love and thinking like you think and wanting what you want unless you make me a son. Could you birth me? Could you merge with me? Could you, could you today, in this, in this very moment, could you just go, could you just come and just invade my life that you're not presenting to us a Christianity that we have to work out and get done. You're presenting yourself to us, pulling us into your heart. You're pulling us into your nature. You want to be an intimate, intricate part of our lives. You're not against us. You're raining on us right now. You're letting the sun shine on us right now. You're withholding no good thing from us right now. Our heads are bowed. Uh, think carefully just while we're praying together this is not an activity to do in other words this is not get out of your seat come to the altar this is not a not an activity to accomplish well I got that done what do you really want What's your real appetite? What are you really hunger for? Hey, could you link with me and could we just, could we just go after Jesus together? Could we just hunger for him? Could we just, oh. I got to know him. I got to have him. I got to. I'm totally, absolutely helpless. You've never met anybody stupider than I am. You've never met anybody more helpless than I am. You've never met anybody who has less talent than I have. You've never seen anybody in the world who has less discipline than I have. I've only got one shot at this. He is going to have to invade my life. Would you recklessly abandon yourself to him today? Would you just all out with no no holds barred, just absolutely plunge, jump, go after, want, desire, hunger, ache. Oh, I gotta have you, Jesus. Would you just cry out without hesitation and reservation for him and him alone? 
I've got to have you. You've got to give me your heart so I know your appetite. I hunger for you and you alone. Now, if you're not willing to do that, hey, fine, just sit there. But our altar's open for people who are, who are, who are, oh, hungry. Who see bread and are starved to death. Who are sick to death of starvation. And there's the bread of life. And in that embracing all outness, his resource, his embrace is activated. And you can experience him. So just just some moments, just just some moments of seeking. I, I'm going to seek. I, oh my heart! I want, 